Hello and thanks for joining us on Search for Truth. I'm your host, John Martin, and once again I'm delighted to welcome you to your Bible teaching program with Brian Johnston. Today, Brian brings us the fourth talk in our 10-part series called The Supremacy of Christ. Each week, Brian's focusing on a fresh uh, quality of what makes Christ the supreme, incomparable, sovereign Lord. Today's title is The Incarnate Christ. So let's discover more from the Bible now with Brian. Thanks, John. And let's begin our look at Christ's supremacy today with a reading from Hebrews, the first three verses, which say, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation or imprint of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. That last verse we just read tells us that Jesus Christ is the exact imprint of the divine substance. But historically, some have stumbled over the Bible's teaching here, the very teaching which underscores the supremacy of the Son, which is our topic. In the early 4th century, a man called Arius proclaimed that the Son was brought into being by God's will, and so was not self-existing as God is. Arius claimed, wrongly, that God the Father always existed, but the Son of God had a beginning. At the same time, it must be pointed out that the Arian Christ is not, by his essential nature, truly human any more than he is truly God. His nature and being is that of a creature like our own in that sense, but elevated far above ours in degree. Arius never denied Jesus' godlike pre-existence. The Christ whom Arius preached is not God become man, but someone less than God who became more than man. This shows how careful we need to be with the Bible language at this point in Hebrews 1 and verse 3. When it speaks of the exact imprint of the divine substance, it's asking us to picture the distinct but totally equivalent imprint made by a seal in hot wax. The imprint made answers perfectly to the seal that made it. Therefore, the teaching here is that everything that's in the Father is in the Son. They share the same substance. Now let's complete the third verse of that first chapter of Hebrews. It tells us that Jesus, when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. This really is showing to us the supremacy of Christ. And here we're given two specific reasons why. They're stated either side of the claim that Christ is better than the angels, and stated in order to support the fact of the Lord's supremacy over the angels. Did you notice them? Actually, both relate to the Lord being both God and man, but we'll come to that later. The first reason is that he's the exalted purifier of our sins. No angel could ever be that. And the second reason was the one about the Lord belonging to the line of David, again something that could never be true of any angel. Perhaps you don't recall our quoted verse of Hebrews 1 verse 5 
talking about how Jesus was a son of King David. You may have thought it was talking directly about Jesus being God's son. After all, isn't that how he's shown to be better than the angels? Because he's God's son? Well, wait a moment. Hebrews 1 and verse 5 is built from two Old Testament quotations, one from the book of Psalms and the other from the first book of Samuel. To appreciate what it's saying, we need to research those Old Testament quotations. The first quote in Hebrews 1 verse 5 comes from the second Psalm, Psalm 2 verse 7, where the speaker, historically, was the then newly installed king in Jerusalem. His position was under some threat. But he confidently says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So we need to explain in context the royal significance which the term my son has in that particular verse. I agree that as we tend to read it now, with the great gap in history standing between, our thoughts immediately turn to Jesus. Not least because we know those words are certainly applied by New Testament writers to Jesus. For example, by the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 13. But the place to start in all Bible exposition is by researching what the original hearers were meant to understand by it in the first place. So let's do that. Psalm 2 appears to have been a coronation psalm, or at least it was used to recall and reaffirm the enthronement of the king in Jerusalem at some point in history when surrounding nations were flexing their muscles and wanting to rebel from being under Judean sovereignty. Before Solomon's coronation, you remember, God had promised to David concerning his son, and this is Second Samuel chapter 7, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and with the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. This is, in fact, the other Old Testament text quoted in our Hebrew verse, Hebrews 1 verse 5, and makes it very clear, specifically in the case of Solomon, that each king belonging to David's dynasty was viewed as God's adopted son. This was true in a functional sense, meaning that the earthly king was viewed as the one charged with the same duty as God, which was administering rule over God's people. This wasn't something limited to Solomon, because there's talk of David's throne being established forever. Other successive descendants of David, down to the Messiah himself, would be used to fulfil this. So, we see that in general, the great king in heavenly Zion, God, and the king of David's line in Jerusalem, were viewed in such scriptures as existing in a father-son relationship. So going back to Psalm 2, we shouldn't overload it with mysticism. The today it mentions is the historical coronation day of a new king in David's dynasty. Someone had recently ascended to the throne in Jerusalem and the surrounding vassal states were taking the opportunity to signal that they were unhappy with Judean rule in his hands. Of course, the greatest application of this text is indeed in its application to the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. The first church of God in Jerusalem could see that its message was very meaningful in terms of what had taken place at the cross. And now, returning to Hebrews 1, we've shown now 
how those Old Testament texts are combined in appealing to the fact that the Lord Jesus was born as a royal son of David's line. And in that, as in the fact that he went to the cross and established the basis for all purification of sins, we have the two stated reasons why he's better than any angel and why he's supreme. And each of these two reasons involve the wonder of his becoming flesh. Of course, for the writer to the Hebrews, Jesus is also the Son of God, through whom also he made the worlds, and is addressed not only as Lord, but actually as God. Check out Hebrews 1 verse 8. But there's no New Testament writer who more emphatically underlines the necessity of Jesus' humanity if there was to be any hope for us none more so than the writer to the Hebrews, who tells us, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same nature, that through death he might deliver them. He had to be made like his brethren in every respect, if he was to be their effective high priest. We read, it is not of angels that he takes hold, but he takes hold of the descendants of Abraham. He sympathises with the weaknesses of his fellow men and knows how best to help them, for he himself has suffered and been tempted, tempted indeed in every respect, as we are, yet without sinning. There's everything warmly and appealingly human in the picture of one who poured out his soul in prayers and supplications with loud cryings and tears to him who was able to save him from death and learned obedience through what he suffered, who blazed the trail of faith and persevered to the end, enduring the cross and despising the shame, putting up with sinners' hostility so that his people, profiting by his example, need not grow weary or faint-hearted. In all these things mentioned in Hebrews, the reality of Christ's humanity is shown here. It's in our Lord's humanity, as well as in his deity, that we appreciate his supremacy. In Hebrews 2 and verse 7 we read, You have crowned him with glory and honour. Verse 9 expands on this and tells us, Jesus was made for a little while lower than the angels because of the suffering of death. And it goes on to tell us he was crowned with glory and honour so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. When the verse is read like that, and I believe it's the correct emphasis, we see that this crowning with glory and honour relates to our Lord's life on earth. You may well ask, how was this glory and honour seen in the Lord's earthly life? To answer, we need only state the facts. He was with the wild beasts in the desert. He made water into wine. He calmed the wind and the waves. He walked on the sea, putting under his feet. He compelled a fish to bring him a coin. He multiplied fish and bread to feed a crowd. He withered a barren fig tree with a word. He healed leprosy, paralysis, blindness and deafness. He commanded demons and they obeyed him. He raised the dead. When he was born, a star appeared. When he died, the sun disappeared. As one commentator has summed it all up, only by the life of one so crowned with glory and honour could the dominion be restored to man. He was referring, of course, to the original God-given dominion over creation, which was frustrated by the fall in the Garden of Eden. What a saviour is Jesus Christ.
Now, don't forget, there's a transcript booklet containing all 10 talks in this series, and it's free. So if you'd like one or more, please ask for the title, The Supremacy of Christ. If you've got a pen and paper to hand, I'll give you our contact details. Here's our postal address first, and then our email address. Search for Truth, Church of God, Downing Drive, Leicester, LE5, 6LN, UK. I'll repeat that. Search for Truth, Church of God, Downing Drive, Leicester, LE5, 6LN, UK. And our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. And you may be interested to know that you can listen again to many of these broadcasts off-air by going to www.searchfortruth.podbean.com and you can browse the list of previous talks which you'll see has been categorised to assist you. It's been a pleasure to enjoy your company today. We really do appreciate it. And next week's talk is called The Creator Christ. So be sure to join us. Until then, very best wishes from Brian, David and me, John. And goodbye and may God richly bless you.